Welcome to Unfuck Your Brain, the only podcast that teaches you how to use psychology, feminism, and coaching to rewire your brain and get what you want in life. And now here's your host, Harvard Law School grad, feminist rock star, and master coach, Kara Lowenthal. Hello, my chickens. Today's guest is, I would almost say like part of almost the founding story of Unfuck Your Brain. If you have, were a client of mine back when I used to do a small group program called Unfuck Your Brain, then you know all about Krista St. Germain. I met Krista when she was my assistant instructor when I was training coaches for the Life Coach School at one of their in-person trainings. What was that, like 2018? No, before that. Yeah, no, 2018. I think 2018 was my last year that I did one-to-one coaching, maybe. Maybe I don't know. I it's, we're in a time warp. We met a while ago. It's Maybe 2017. It's been a while. Who can say? And then I was like, oh, you are good at this and smart. Now you're mine. And then I... <laughs> and then you petted me. I petted her. We both showed up wearing Leota dresses. And so then I hired her and she was a baby coach. And she worked in my Unfuck Your Brain program. And she would work with people on their first month when they came in. And that meant that I got to spend like 18 months of my life having people say to me, you know, this program has been nice and all, but like Krista told me that your thoughts cause your feelings. And that just like blew my mind. And I would have to be like, oh, yeah, that Krista, she really, she, she knows. knows some good shit. She knows some good secret <laughs> stuff that I never told you. It's just like when you're, you know, it's like your kids have to hear something from somebody else. They can't hear it from you. Yeah, so, totally. Anyway, many amazing people had Krista as their coach in my program, and but she was destined for bigger and better things. She had to go off and do her own incredible work. So she's going to tell us all about that. Tell us who you coach and what your work is and what yeah. do we need to know about you? Yeah, it's the work that nobody ever really intends to do, right? But mm-hmm. through through life circumstance. So I work with widowed moms and I'm obsessed with grief and post-traumatic growth and helping people rebuild life. like, And not just get to that place where they think you know, that they should get like this new normal. Like it's like one of my biggest pet peeves is that, that, Mm -hmm. that idea of a new normal, but helping them really truly love life again, which is. So tell us how you came to that. Like, how did you become an expert on grief? As you said, not something people really set out to do. Yeah. So when I was 40, I was on my way back from a trip with my husband. We hadn't been married more than a couple of months. My first marriage had ended in divorce and it was, you know, not the best situation. And so Hugo and I met he was just like the redemption story, right? Like proof that you can be treated the way you want to be treated and it can Mm -hmm. be easy and good. And I had a flat tire. He went to change it. He didn't want to call AAA, very stubborn, you know, baby, just let me change the tire and we'll get done faster. And as he was trying to get access to the tire, a driver that we later found out had both meth and alcohol in his system just didn't see us. And it was like 530 on a Sunday. So it's, you know, daylight, but crashed right into the back of Hugo's car. And within a day, you know, he was just gone. And so I found myself with a great therapist able to get through the early days of grief, but at a point which, you know, I now refer to as a grief plateau, really just not sure where to turn and not finding any resources for myself, right? Because my therapist Mm. was like, you're doing great. And I was like, really? (laughs) I don't think this is what great feels like. I mean, I'm doing okay. I'm getting through. I'm back to work. I look okay. The kids are getting fed. But I actually kind of don't think I can be truly happy again. And I don't think that's what great is. That doesn't seem like okay to me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so then, you know, it just kind of coincidentally happened that Brooke Castillo launched Self-Coaching Scholars, like right at that Mm -hmm. point in time where I was like, what am I doing here? 
And then I joined and coaching just kind of knocked my socks off. And so here I am. Quit my job. Knocked my socks off. Knocked my, the, the, the true Midwestern in me is coming out. <laughs> I told Chris before we started that she was like the Midwestern mom I never had. Yeah. And the, you know, I'm used to this now since my partner is a Midwestern well, a partner I never thought I'd have. So let's talk a little bit more about that sort of experience you had where, and I love that term grief plateau. Why do you think there's such a kind of lack of resources for grief? Like, it's sort of like, as you're saying, we have that kind of like, okay, immediately afterwards, but then like yeah. everything just peters out. Yeah. Well, in all the conversations I have with people about grief, what I find is that everybody pretty much only knows about the five stages of grief. Like it, mm. in most people's minds, that is the only grief theory that exists. Even doctors, right? I'll talk to doctors mm. and that's the only one they ever learned too. And so it's like Elizabeth Kubler-Ross did this valuable work at the time. And then we just kind of assumed that that was the way grief went and then stopped talking about it. Mm. And, you know, maybe just like other things, there are lots of theories about grief and <laughs> you know, things that we could learn. So we're just, we don't talk about it. We're not ready for it. We have a lot of misunderstandings about it. And yeah, people just think, oh, have you come to acceptance yet? Were you angry enough? Did you bargain? And then you're done. <laughs> and then you're done. It's just, done. you just check off five little boxes. Right. And you're good. That's it. You're good. And, and we live in this culture that, you know, kind of assumes and talks about grief as though it is this finite journey. And once, you know, you reach the end and then you move on and there's a rainbow and a medal, and I don't know, something happens magically in a year, right? <laughs> a and we're just, and we're just done. cereal that somebody gives you with a little prize inside. Mm -hmm. So, what do you think about those? I mean, I think there's like multiple things to talk about here. One being that I feel like I haven't done an intercultural comparison of grief, but mm. it doesn't seem like unrelated to me that American culture is so kind of obsessed with like the positive and looking on the bright side, and we don't really deal with death. We don't have the same intimacy with death in our culture, and older people often live in like nursing homes and away from their family. Like we're just not yeah. in conversation with death as yeah. much. And so. Yeah. And also we like, need to, we need to be productive when we're grieving. Right. And right. yeah, like there's a million things that I think make it way harder. Right. It's like all the things that interfere with your ability to be productive as a worker, like giving birth or dying mm -hmm. or grieving or even heartbreak or like any of the kind of big emotional impacts or physical impacts that people go through. Right. We don't really know how to deal with correctly or not deal with well, I guess. So what do you think about the five stages of grief? I know you have strong opinions. I mean, I think it was an amazing anecdotal observation at the time that started a valuable conversation. But most people don't understand is that it wasn't even actually about coming to terms with someone's loss. It wasn't about what you experience when you have a loss. It was a study of hospice patients, right? It was about people coming mm. to terms with their own death. And then mm. that work was taken and then applied to dying. Wait, that's so grieving. interesting. Hold on. It was a study of how people deal with their own death, and then it was yeah. turned into, oh, this is how you deal with the grief about somebody else's death. Right. It was first on death and dying, and then became on grief and grieving. But it That's was, so weird. That doesn't seem like that's not generalizable in that way. No. And, and if you go back and you read even you know what Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote in her later years, it was very frustrating to her that people took her work and applied it the way that they did and made it formulaic mm. and made it linear. You know, She never really intended for that to happen. So, But it was something nobody was talking about at the time. So there's value in it then, but it's like we just stopped talking about, even though there are many other grief theories, we just stopped talking about it and everyone's you know walking around trying to fix square pegs and round holes and take a process that really is not linear and make it something that has a beginning, middle, and end. And it's just not that way. I mean, when I think about like how uncomfortable Americans in particular, but just people in general 
are with like uncomfortable emotion, mm-hmm. right? It's like we're like, okay, I want it to be a process so I'll know when I get to like stage two and then yeah. what comes next. It's like we want it to be mechanized and like almost industrial in that way. Like we just go through the steps and then it's done mm-hmm. and we have successfully grieved. Right. Right. As opposed to like the messy emotional experience of being a human. Yeah. Do you have a theory? Like what is a theory of grief that you find more compelling or more useful? I think that one of the more useful ones is the dual process model of grief. And the reason I like that one is because people in our culture anyway, tend to classify behaviors as good or bad, right or wrong, right? Like there's a right way to do grief. And I know I definitely fell into this. That's probably why I read so many grief books is because I wanted to do it right and Mm -hmm. productively. And so dual process model teaches that there's really kind of two buckets of activities. So there's grief related, like loss oriented activities thinking about the loss, processing the feelings, you know, dealing with the business of the loss. And then there's this other bucket of activities, which is like respite, non-loss related. So having hobbies, taking a break, living your life, doing things for fun, right? And a lot of people will think they can't do that because if if they do those non-grief related activities, then they're avoiding their grief or they're not as productive in their grief. And so what dual process theory teaches is that healing is in the oscillation, the intentional Mm -hmm. back and forth of I'll take time to do the grief-related things, the loss-oriented things, and then I intentionally give myself permission to take a break Mm -hmm. from it, right? And we go back and forth, back and forth. It's like dialectical kind of. Yeah, it's the both and, and there's nowhere to get or go, and there's no way to do it right or wrong, and behaviors aren't good or bad. It's all-encompassing, and it gives us permission to take care of ourselves and to rest and to not just be obsessed with what has happened all the time. So I'm curious how like you work with widowed moms and I'm curious how you see kind of patriarchy or socialization showing up in the way that like women in particular respond to grief. Mm -hmm. How long do we have? (laughs) (laughs) Plenty of time. This can be the main chunk of the podcast. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think most of us realize how much we are socialized to value the partnered relationship and how much of our identity is wrapped up in being partnered. I don't know if you remember this, but way back when I did the 100K program with Brooke and you, you Mm -hmm. mentored me. One of the things I was talking about was how widows really struggle with confidence. And you were like, why? You know, wouldn't they be struggling with loneliness or sadness? Like that doesn't really make sense to me. And what I found is that they don't realize how much of their confidence was being leveraged by the identity that they had in the partnership. And so Mm -hmm. when that is stripped away, then, you know, they feel quite vulnerable and naked. There's all kinds of money drama, right? If we're not taught as women that we're good at creating money, if we're only taught that we're good at budgeting money, then what happens when we get a large amount of money from a life insurance policy? Well, we're totally freaked out about losing it, right? Mm. Because we don't believe we're good at it. The wedding ring, we don't want people to see that we're not married anymore because what will they think of us? They will judge us. I see that all the time. Our status will be lower as Mm -hmm. a unmarried woman. Yeah. Yeah. The lack of self-trust, right? The decision-making anxiety not having ever really made decisions by yourself and not really knowing how to think about making decisions really shows up. The right or wrong decision-making. There's a very long list. Do you see a difference in, I don't know exactly who you tend to usually work with, but I wonder if this is that stuff is more pronounced with people who like got married earlier and were in their mm-hmm. relationships longer. I'm curious, like for you, for instance, you weren't with Hugo very long. Were some of the same patterns there or was it a little bit different? Not nearly as much. I didn't feel like I had been devalued because I was no longer partnered. But I did. I remember I didn't want to take my wedding ring off because I didn't want to be, quote unquote, back on the market. Mm. That's how I thought of it, right? Like I I kind of hid behind that. Like I'm not really ready 
for that. I did have a lot of the financial drama in my brain, but I don't think it was as significant for me. A lot of the women that I work with tend to be in that really sweet, awkward spot where they're about to be empty nesters and then they become widows, sometimes also caregivers of parents. But you know, in that almost an empty nester phase where your identity is about to switch again, right? You're about to redefine yourself or you have a very specific vision for how your life is going to go. And then it doesn't. It's like, okay, who am I if I'm not going to be a mom in the way that I have defined myself? Hmm. And I'm also not a wife. I don't even know who I am. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, I do think women are socialized to have the identity of wife in a way that like, don't feel like you hear men say so much like, well, if I'm not a husband, then who am I? Like, no. Husband is just one of the many things. It's like, well, I'm a husband and a ad executive and a golfer. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm like describing Mad Men now. But like, I don't feel like <laughs> there's that same. Obviously, they're like men who are widowed and really grieve their partners, of course, or suffer in divorce. But I it, I don't think that there's like that a wife has been like a woman's whole identity for mm -hmm. so long of our history in Western civilization, at least. Like that was your whole deal. You're a wife yeah. and a mother. So, you know, that idea of like, it is such an interesting thing to be like, oh, this is my identity, but I can somehow lose it if the circumstance changes or mm -hmm. like if my marital status changes in a way that I don't think that men, mm -mm. you know, however much they might grieve their wife or their husband, if they're widowed or they become a widower, they're not having that same like, oh, who am I if I'm not a husband? Yeah. And I also don't think they have that same history of seeking external validation. Right. They are less likely to look for other people's support or worry when they don't get other people's validation about the decisions that they're making. So do I date again? And what do I do with this money? And where do I live? And how do I parent? And all of these things right. that women seem to really struggle more with. Yeah, I just coached somebody and I'm doing the stop second guessing challenge this week. And I just coached somebody about always deferring to her husband on decisions. Right. Like, and then what happens if your husband isn't there? Like who's making those decisions? You've mm -hmm. like systematically devalued your own opinion. Yeah. This whole time. So I'm curious, like, you know, one of the things that you're talking about, and that certainly you know, we've heard me talk about ad nauseum on the podcast, is the sort of socialization for women around not just the status value of a relationship, that like, it's higher status to be partnered than to be single socially, but also this sort of like, a relationship is your key to happiness, right? You mm -hmm. can be happy only if you're in a happy relationship. So then of course, if your partner is gone, then right, you can't be you're happy. Toast. So that I'm curious how you sort of see that show up in your work and what are your thoughts now on the other side of this about kind of happiness and relationships? Yeah, I see it show up all the time. So there's a lot of, without even realizing it, I think women tend to believe that the goal is to get partnered again. And it's just a matter of doing enough self-work to improve themselves. So immediately they go mm. back to, you know, am I good enough for the male gaze? right? Without using that right. language, but like, what do I need to do to my body? Cause it's been a minute and probably I'm not as desirable as I once was. You know, there's a time limit on that because of my age. So I probably better hurry up and I better fix myself and get myself to an emotional place where I'm good enough, ready enough to date because ultimately right. I can't be happy unless I'm partnered. So the approach that I try to take is to go back and kind of do the model before the model, right? Which is to help them get in a place where they own the emotional experiences they had when they were partnered. Because mm -hmm. otherwise, they attribute all of their happiness to that right. person and that partnership. And so if I can get them to really see that, no, it was always you, right? Not to diminish right. the other person. I'm sure they were amazing too, but it really never was them. It was always your thoughts about yourself and your life. 
And nobody can right. take that away from you, even when your person dies. Yeah. So we spend a lot of time on that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's such a, it's such an example of why changing your circumstance to resolve your self-doubt is at best a temporary measure. I see these people who got, who got married without doing this work on their thoughts too, and then they feel confident. Then the minute they get divorced, it's all right back to where it was, mm-hmm. right? Because they never actually changed the thoughts. They just felt better because somebody had, you know, quote unquote, chosen them. And then the minute that that's not true, right back to those thoughts again. There's always somebody in my program who, you know, had a rebound and got remarried quickly and mm-hmm. is like proof, you know, to the other people right, like, hey, right. this is not exact, you know, it's, this is not actually the ticket to happiness. And I really wish I would have, you know, slowed down and figured out what I wanted and who I wanted to be and realized that I actually could be happy without being partnered. And it really doesn't have anything to do with it. That is one of the best parts of group coaching is like, Whatever your thing is, there's someone in the group who is or has that thing that you think mm-hmm. that you need or want, and they're just like as bananas as you are. Yeah, like yeah. same nonsense. Yeah. So can you tell us you talked you mentioned post-traumatic growth earlier? I don't think a lot of people have not heard that. They've only heard of post-traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about post-traumatic growth and how do you think that factors into grief? Yeah, I remember the first time I heard post-traumatic growth just as a term, and it was like one of those record scratch moments where you're like, wait, what is that? What did you just say? Post-traumatic what? And it's this the idea that you can go through some sort of traumatic event, right? And you can experience a level of wellness that is worse than where you were before the traumatic event. You can experience a level of wellness that is equivalent to where you were before the traumatic event. Or you can use the traumatic event to kind of bounce forward instead of back to greater levels of satisfaction and wellness. The researchers that coined it, you know, originally were actually studying widows. They had noticed that some widows were completely miserable. Others were kind of back to quote unquote normal. And then there was this other group that were actually experiencing more satisfaction and greater levels of happiness and independence and spiritual connection and deeper relationships. Right. Right. And it wasn't because they had secretly plotted the death of their partner or anything. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Widows who successfully get away with murdering their partner are really happy They are so happy. Yeah. I like to compare it to like because people tend to think it's a moral thing. Like it's a, it's another should. Right. It's like, well, okay, if I experienced a loss, then I should experience post-traumatic growth. Well, that's totally what I wanted to ask about helpful. was like, I can totally see. And I think I do see people using that as like, okay, so the way you grieve productively and best is to like have post-traumatic growth. And mm-hmm. then, yeah, right. the way I think about it, and this is because I live in Kansas, probably, you know, we have tornadoes here is like, if you've been living in a house for a long period of time and a tornado comes and knocks down your house, you're going to have to rebuild your house. You're going to have to find somewhere to live. You could try to rebuild that house as closely as possible to the house that you lived in. That wouldn't be right or wrong or good or bad. But if you lived there for a while, you probably learned some things about what you liked about that house and what you didn't like. So if you're going to build a house, you could also take advantage of that wisdom and experience and update Mm -hmm. the design and add more windows right. or add more electrical outlets or whatever, right? That's post-traumatic growth. It's like, can we leverage what we've learned from life experiences mm-hmm. to create even more of what we want? It doesn't make us better. It's not morally superior. It's just right. an option. And I think that there is not something there's a timeline on. It's not like, okay, well, I've been grieving too long. I'm supposed to be having post-traumatic growth now. No, and there is no timeline, right? Because grief doesn't end. There is no finish line. Grief is just all the thoughts and feelings that we have about a perceived loss. We're always going to have thoughts and feelings about the loss, right? So the goal, as I see it, is just to go from unintentionally thinking about our loss to thinking about it with intention and to deciding who we want to be given that the loss has happened. Yeah. Well, I love that. So, I mean, I think that that kind of segues into 
what advice would you give somebody who is on their grief journey and is having, you know, it's sort of like, I don't think it's not the grief itself that needs to be solved. It's like the Mm -hmm. way that we're relating to the grief or what we're Mm -hmm. making it mean or how we're talking to ourselves about it. So for any listeners who are kind of struggling with grief or struggling with their thoughts about how it should be going or what should Mm -hmm. be happening, where do you recommend people kind of start or what's a piece of advice that you could offer? Yeah. First, just to ignore everything you ever thought you knew about grief because most of it's wrong and it's not helping you. Honestly, Mm -hmm. right? Because there is no right or wrong. Ignore most of what you've learned about emotions unless they've learned it from you, right? Or other similar teachers. Because when we think about feelings as problems, then of course we want to change our thinking to solve the feelings. But they aren't problems, right? They're just experiences to allow. And so we don't need to think positively. We don't need to force gratitude. We don't need to find the blessings or the, the hidden benefit. Like none of that needs to happen. It's more about can we separate ourselves from what we can control and what we can't, right? And then mm-hmm. make choices accordingly. That to me is what it is. I've seen this quote a few times. It's like, grief is love with no place to go or something. It's like, I like part of that, but I also feel like it's like, I don't think actually the problem is that the love has no place to go, like the person's gone. The mm-hmm. problem is actually that like we don't know how to allow and express and experience that. Mm-hmm. love and grief in the same way. It's like we think that the love has no place to go because we think that we need the person or the relationship. I mean, people you know, are grieving things that happen to them as well. It's not necessarily that you've lost somebody who's died. It's like people are grieving the end of a relationship or they're grieving the old self they were before an injury yeah. or they're grieving. You know, I mean, I went through like a really, you know, we've been talking more about loss in terms of death, but people listen to the podcast know I've talked quite a bit about like, I went through a really intense grief process when I met my partner of like the whole life that I was not going to be living anymore of like, that I was giving up one life to live a different life. And that was, I think, would have like sabotaged and ended that relationship if I hadn't done enough emotional work to be able to hold that. Mm -hmm. So when I think about that idea that it's like grief is love with no place to go, it's like, it doesn't need the person to go to. It just, it needs Mm -hmm. a place to go inside you. It's like you have to like open that dam inside yourself to allow feeling. I think there's just something around part of what I feel like makes grief so hard is that, or at least in my experience when I've grieved people or relationships or whatever, is that it's like I'm trying to get rid of the love also because I think that that's what's painful. Mm -hmm. But it's not actually the love that's painful, right? Mm -hmm. It's like there's the grief, but there's also the like story about the grief or the belief that the love being there is what's causing the pain and that I need to get rid of it or that, you know, that I need to be through it already. It's like all of that is what's painful. Yeah. That has never really resonated with me either, that it has love with nowhere to go. I get that if we didn't care about someone, of course we wouldn't grieve them. Yeah. Right. But yearning is only a a small portion of the grief experience. Right. So yeah, it just never really resonates with me either. It's more like, can I just decide consciously how I want to think about the fact that this has happened? Can I reconcile that I wanted it to go this way? It went that way. Grief, right? Then I get to make another choice. Okay, this is what yeah. happened. Now, who do we want to be now? What do we want to think about? What's possible going forward? So if somebody is grieving a loss, especially if they are a widow, where can they find you to learn more about your work? Yeah, the Widowed Mom podcast, which I realize is super niched, but I highly recommend that if you just want to learn about grief or you're interested in post-traumatic growth or you want to support someone, come and listen or, you know, think of someone you know in your life that might benefit and send them because there are lots of widows out there who are just like I was and weren't getting the support that they really wanted. 
So, and coachingwithkrista.com is where all of my socials can be found. <laughs> your socials. My okay. socials. <laughs> Thanks for coming on and sharing your Thanks wisdom with us. Me. Yeah, appreciate it. If you're loving what you're learning in the podcast, you have got to come check out The Clutch. The Clutch is the podcast community for all things Unfuck Your Brain. It's where you can get individual help applying the concepts to your own life. It's where you can learn new coaching tools not shared on the podcast that will blow your mind even more. And it's where you can hang out and connect over all things thought work with other podcast chickens just like you and me. It's my favorite place on earth and it will change your life. I guarantee it. Come join us at www.unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash the clutch. That's unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash the clutch. I can't wait to see you there.